Okay, hello. Uh, Josh, you still with us? Hello? Yes, Josh, can you hear me? Okay, yeah, I can hear you now. I keep hearing, like, somebody say muted, and then I think I'm muted, so, but I can hear you fine. Okay, well, uh, here we go. Um, um, first off, thanks for, um, so we are recording now. Uh, first off, thanks for uh, taking time out of what I'm sure is a, a busy schedule, especially with your recent move, and I'll talk with us for a little while about um, museums and, uh, and web projects. And our our plan is to uh, talk for maybe 45 minutes or so, and then have a brief uh, Q&A session at the end, and uh, and then definitely um, put a cap on it at an hour. Does that sound okay, given your time? Sure, yeah. Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, just by way of introduction, I'll tell you a little bit about uh, us, and then we're, we're going to get into you. I'm, as I said, my name is Clay. And uh, I'm part of a, a small group that includes three other students that are on the line. Um, that's Allison, Thomas, and Kate. But there's also uh, the rest of the class. Uh, many of them are also online right now as well. And uh, everybody's going to be listening to this, um, at least in, in recorded form later on. Uh, we're, uh, we're students in the Johns Hopkins Graduate Museum Studies Program. And we're in a class called Developing Museum Projects. And uh, our professor next class is uh, Dana Allen Grail, uh, who she is on as well. And the project she's assigned this semester is to um, create a, a proposal for a web project for a specific museum of our choosing. We're about halfway through that process. Okay. Um, so speaking of that, uh, judging from your resume, you have a bit of experience in that category. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So we're really excited to, uh, to uh, talk to you about that. Um, uh, but just to get the really important thing out of the way first, uh, rumor has it that you're a, a, a big uh, roller coaster freak. Is that true? Yes, that is true. <laughs> I, any indeed. similarities between any similarities between riding roller coasters and uh, managing a, a project for museums? Oh, they're like metaphors for life, right? I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's they're they're one and the same to me basically, except one is for fun and one is you know to get a job done. So. Uh, there you go, there you go. Do you have a favorite somewhere in in the country? Yeah, it's still it's kind of old by now, but I still really love Millennium Forest at Cedar Point. It's ah, consistent. Yeah. It's consistently ranked one of the best in the country, and you know there are now taller and faster, but it still keeps winning the best awards. So it's it's, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah. Well, if you ever now that you're on the West Coast, if you ever get down to Santa Cruz, there's a great old, really scary one down there too. Okay, I will have to do that. Okay, well, let's dive right into it. Um, um, uh, first off, uh, can you tell us, just give us a little bit of background uh, first about uh, about yourself and uh, and what you've done, and and maybe even a, a little bit about your new position in Google, if you like. Sure, sure. So, um, my background is actually in. My, my roots are in theatrical design. Um, I started, I have a BFA from undergrad in uh, set design in particular. And if anyone on the call or anyone listening in um, is familiar with theatrical design, you do a lot of um, summer stock theater. So I've kind of bounced all over the country um, doing scenic art and design work from coast to coast. Um, and then for graduate school, I attended Carnegie Mellon's uh, entertainment technology program which a lot of people know by um, one of the men who founded it, uh, Randy Pausch, who did the last lecture a couple years back. Um, but the, the crux of the program is to kind of smush together fine artists and technologists to create um, interdisciplinary 
based uh, entertainment experiences. So people from this program tend to work in either the kind of video game vertical or the theme park vertical or sometimes film. Um, and I was sort of unique in the sense that I was the first person that went from there um, to work for a museum. And after graduating, I founded a company with uh, some colleagues from my program based on our thesis project called Evil Genius Designs. And Brilliant name, by the way. Yeah, thanks. And after about a year of, um, of startup culture, I realized, oh, it's not, I, I, don't, I don't like being kind of like at this, you know, uh, role within a startup company. Maybe it's not for me. I need a salary at least of some kind. You know, I didn't even have that. Mm -hmm. um, so luckily there was um, an opportunity at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, which was a new role, and I, I moved there. And I was there for about four and a half years until I got scooped up by Google. And now um, I work for Google actually doing very similar work to what I was doing at the, at the Warhol. But um, at Google right now, there is a new team that I am working on called the Experience Centers Group. And it's, it's a lot of – actually, there's only seven of us, really. Um, most of them are graduates from my program, which is pretty cool. Um, but they kind of come from a, a few different backgrounds. We have a few people who were former uh, Disney Imagineers. We have a couple people who are kind of theatrical designers, and then myself, who's sort of this like museum guy. And together, what we're doing is conceptualizing, project managing, and kind of executing physical interactive spaces for Google. And they are all currently internal spaces, so nothing yet that the public is seeing, although down the road, there are plans to do some really cool, exciting public-facing projects. So that's what I'm doing now. Oh, fascinating. Um, by the way, just as an aside, uh, you mentioned the Disney Imagineers. If you get a chance to see the uh, Disney Museum in San Francisco at some point, it's, it's pretty spectacular. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. we actually, so um, we're, we worked with them rather extensively for a forthcoming exhibition at the Warhol. Um, so I'm somewhat yeah. familiar. It's a really great place. It's really great. Yeah, yeah. Um, you said um, your personal website says you have a passion uh, for building experience. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. Um, so, you know, having started in theater, I mean, all of that stuff is like hand drafting and painting with a paintbrush. And now I'm, I'm working pretty exclusively with technology. Um, but I think at the end of the day, what I really like to do is I really love telling stories. You can ask any of my friends. I'm like a total storyteller. And... I, I learned kind of early on in both the theatrical world and in the museum tech world, and I'm definitely learning this at Google, is that there tend to be a lot of any, any type of project you're working on, whether it's a museum interactive piece or like an, an immersive experience for Google, you have a lot of experts on a team. You'll have a curator. You'll have a business person. Um, but you don't necessarily have someone who's thinking about guest experience or, or experience design. And I think um, in, in – in enjoying telling stories and in, in enjoying being an advocate for kind of like the user or the guest, I've found that the place that I really love to be is sort of in that space where I'm kind of a glue that kind of holds the team together, but also is mm -hmm. always advocating for the guest who goes through the experience. So oftentimes, like, you know, you'll have a curator, for example, who is an absolute expert and has an absolutely great, like, academic slant on what to do for an exhibition. But they may not necessarily be thinking about, you know, flow through a space or 
you know, basic stuff from like where to put benches, because by this point, somebody's really tired, but also, you know, what is the overarching narrative, not only in the space, but are we executing that well across everything that the guest is going to interact with from the website to the e-blast to uh, the label on the wall to, you know, wayfinding inside of the museum. And oftentimes, I'm sure, you know, your class knows like all of the roles inside of the museum. A lot of times, it's rather piecemeal, but usually somebody like a brand czar or like a marketing person tends to be involved with that. But their goals are very different than like an experienced designer's goals, right? Like their goals are to create impressions um, and to maybe sell a product. Uh, but somebody like a guest experience designer is someone who's thinking solely about crafting a really great experience. Mm-hmm. Well, that sounds like a really critical role. Do you think it would always be um, that would be um you know, standard uh, operating procedure, but I guess it's not always the case. Right, right. It's it's interesting. I think um, it's becoming more of a thing. Like I'm finding in a lot of my colleagues from uh, graduate school in particular are are starting to create roles or are starting to fill in roles or things like guest experience advocate or experience designer. And I think mm-hmm. it, it might be evolving because the – the landscape is evolving. Everybody by now has gone to a Disney park probably or has gone to a really great, incredible entertainment experience, and now they're sort of expecting that in other places where maybe they weren't expecting it before. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're in, a, we're in a place where, you know, for example, the Warhol Museum is in Pittsburgh. Visitors to Pittsburgh have options when they come for, like, an entertainment weekend. They can either go to a baseball game, they can go to a theme park, or they can go to the Warhol. They don't have time for all of them. So... How can we, you know, aside from the great collection that we have and the great, you know, knowledge you're going to learn, how can we create such a great experience that you're going to want to do that over going to, like, the baseball game, for example? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Did you feel, um, did you feel, you know, Warhol's kind of mission museum, there's others like this, where it's, it's focused on a single artist. Um, did you feel like that was uh, limiting to you in any way, or did it have any advantages or present any specific challenges to being early focused like that? Um, I feel actually, I feel kind of the opposite. Like I feel like it was really freeing because I think that what it allows us to do is is have a very consistent kind of theme or message throughout most of what we do, a really easy to pin down brand, and it really allows. I, you know, in the time that I, I was there, I think really allowed us to dive both deeply and broadly. So um, an example is, you know, we have archives at the museum that are filled with ephemera from Warhol's daily life, but also his family. So we have a lot of, like, his parents' immigration documents from Slovakia, um, and that allows us to that, – that's a jumping-off point for us to explore, for example, Carpato-Russian culture, which is a thing that we do very frequently at the museum – we make connections with those ethnic groups across the country in Slovakia, and it allows us to sort of trace Warhol's roots back in a way that maybe, um, maybe more encyclopedic museums might find harder to dive that deep, you know, in, in mm-hmm. a particular um, artist's life, for example. I, I, thought, mm-hmm. I thought it was really great. And the other thing that, about Warhol, I mean, as I'm sure everybody knows, is he's, he has this really broad appeal. So, we called it at the museum, we called it uptown downtown where you can appeal to both, you know, the, the one percenters that collect art, you know, Warhol is one of the most sought after artists to collect, but he also in his, in his creation process and in his daily life 
surrounded himself with, you know, the equivalent of like 1960s hipsters and druggies, right? So you can appeal to both of these classes of people and it allows like this really broad range of stuff that you can do as a museum, which is really cool. So I didn't actually really, find it limiting at all. Yeah, that's an interesting point because I noticed with the, in the, um, the app you created you know, for the museum, it's, I think it's called Warhol uh, DYA uh, Pop, uh, the interactive yeah. app. It's just amazing. Uh, that's a really fun app, by the way. I was going to talk about that more a little bit later. But um, sure. Uh, for those of you, uh, those of you listening, you ought to go. Uh, you ought to go um, get that from the app store. It's really a kick. And I just thought it's amazing how how widely accessible that is. Partly because of the type of art that I think, and I, I just think you guys did an amazing job of translating that, you know, into a digital space. It's really a fun uh, app to work with. Great. Thank you. Um, uh, so. Uh, uh, a lot of your work that Warhol was con- con- conceiving and executing this, this digital strategy. Can you can you talk a little bit about how you uh, approach creating like a, a holistic strategy for the museum, and did that evolve at all uh, over the time you were there? Yeah. Um, so so I, I was the first. I guess a bit of context. I was the first person to ever like fill a role like that at the museum. There was never like a digital anything <laughs> before I started. So. Mm-hmm. Um, what I was crafting was very much from scratch and it was kind of this like math problem of like, how do I match up, you know, like your, your, your stakeholders, you know, your strategic plan and then, you know, balance that against like what is logically feasible with the budget we had, which was super small. Um, and I think it was very much like a phased approach. When I started the museum, there was no social media there was a very, very old website from like 1998, I think, or 1999. There had not been mm. a time repression. And, and I started in 2010. So, I mean, that is an incredibly long time for, you know, nothing to kind of be updated. And then, of course, there's, there were no – that's just the front-facing side. There were no um, kind of workflows or structures or anything built internally to, like, manage these things or build them or maintain them. So sort mm-hmm. of like – as a phased approach, it was sort of like, okay, how can we get ourselves to like a functional place that was sort of like step one. So like, let's open up a Facebook channel and a Twitter channel and like, let's figure out how we're going to talk to our audience, like what the role of that is. And then like, how do we make our website like usable and functional? You know, I didn't even think about responsive design sort of like in the first pass through. It was just like, can we get something up that's better than what we have now? And then... (laughs) So, and then it was sort of like, well, how can we, once that's done, how can we build upon what we've already done? Like by, you know, the, our, our social media audience is like totally exploded, like in this really great way. We have a massive following, especially on Twitter. And it was like, how can we now, you know, Qdato, how can we appeal to these audiences with projects that um, they can relate to or that they'll find interesting? So that was really mm-hmm. kind of the the evolution of things like our figment project which is a 24 7 live cam on warhol's grave uh which is at warhol.org slash figment you can tune yeah. in probably right right now and see if there's anyone up there or yeah know, i've seen it a, i've seen it very very but, interesting yeah and that's you know that has a lot of like curatorial you know insight you know people compare it to warhol's empire or you know some of the films he did but it's also this way to kind of connect physical and digital in this really great way. It's actually the most visited page on the site after the homepage, which is kind of crazy. Wow. Yeah. Cause it's, so, it's like so boring, but like, I don't know why people want to watch it, but anyway, <laughs> um, 
Well, it's, it's Andy. You know, it, it fits with a lot of kind of crazy stuff he did. Um, right. Uh, it, it, one thing about that, that great thing about that 1999 site is it, it'll, if you ever want to, it, it's got to make a great uh, before and after uh, example for your portfolio. You know, sort of like. Oh, sure. Yeah, Here's yeah, where, yeah. We Here's where I am. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Um, uh, if I could have, uh, change subjects a little bit. Um, to uh, audiences and audience development, um, I don't know if this is uh, you know part of your area of expertise, but uh, it sounds like you you wore a lot of hats there at the Warhol, so maybe. But it seems like um, museums uh, oftentimes have a natural constituency among the general public. You know, uh, mm-hmm. you know certain audiences that have a natural affinity for the uh, the collection, and and I imagine right. it's especially true for museums that focus on a single artist or single uh, genre, and so it's kind of come up in our discussions in class, but given the limited resources that museums have, what are your thoughts on sort of making the most of developing existing those existing audience segments versus developing you know, whole new ones or underrepresented ones? You know, there's obviously there's people that love Warhol. I mean, are you designing a better experience for them, or are you trying to attract people that maybe have no experience with Warhol? Does that ever come up? Yeah, totally. So we, we ended up actually, internally, we, we have these, like, different um, audience. We, we've, we segmented the audience in such a way that we have what we call, like, Warhol prosumers, which might be unique to this artist or this type of artist where you have someone who is, they know a lot about Warhol. They may, maybe they don't know, like, which, you know, uh, country his parents immigrated from, but they know a lot about the collection. They know a lot about his life, a lot about his career. So, so that's actually a really um, difficult audience to appeal to because you can't just give them something like, hey, check out this great Marilyn Monroe from, like, 1964. They want more information yeah. than that. Um, and then you have to marry that up with uh, people who are completely naive about Warhol but might be interested because they know, you know Campbell Soup and they know Marilyn. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who are, like, scholars who are really looking for super deep, deep dive information about the provenance of a piece or, you know, where are the um, original acetates for this work? I'm writing a, a book about it, you know, or whatever. Um, and, and then when you take that and then you obfuscate it across, the, you know, the fact that, like, he is arguably one of the world's leading cultural brands, you know, we have mm-hmm. a global audience. And the museum does, um, especially for its size, there's a significant amount of traveling exhibitions uh, internationally. So it's a really big challenge. I think... Um, one of the things that we were sort of, you know, kind of related to your previous question, one of the things that we were working on when I was leaving is this idea of creating new membership brackets or new membership tiers mm, and then creating, like, content um, content spigots, basically, that would feed each of these audiences. So one of them is, like, mm-hmm. an international membership. One is, like, uh, a Warhol prosumer membership. Instead of just sort of, like, be a member of the museum, right? Well, we're, we happen to be in a smaller city in the U.S. It's kind of hard to get to. And even though people will make a, pig, a pilgrimage to come to the Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, we still have to serve these other audiences. So it's definitely a nut that we haven't cracked yet, but it's one that's on our radar and that they're, they're, they're trying really hard to figure out how to, how to address that. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it all goes back to this bigger issue, which is, you know, and I, I know that you might have, you, you might have more questions about this, but like, from a resources standpoint, it, you know, we have such a small staff. I think it was like 30 full-time people when I was there, which is super small. Um, 
And just keeping the museum going is like trouble enough, not to mention like sure. new, new content streams um, is, a, is a big challenge. So it's, it's a huge challenge, but a very important one. Right. Um, yeah, I can, I can imagine. Um, staying on audiences for a minute, um, just looking at your portfolio, it's incredible uh, the diversity of the work you've done, even going back all the way to your, uh, your, you know, your set design. I'm, I'm thrilled to see that you still have that uh, as an old school uh, hard copy uh, art major. Yeah. It's great to see that on your on your website, you know. But yeah. um, you've done uh, you've done in gallery interactives uh, and 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 apps and, and websites. That you, do you, is the audience for the for, for interactives in in gallery interactives and, and apps different? And what is the process for for identifying what those segments are. Yeah. So I think with very rare exception, we try and develop everything for everyone. Um, so I think we, we tend to not we, – we don't necessarily, like, in this case, we don't necessarily start with, like, an audience and build something for them. We tend to start with, like, a problem or an opportunity mm -hmm. and then build it out and make it available for everybody. So one of the mm. – I think an example of this is, like, we – identified at the museum this sort of kind of issue where the way that Warhol screen tests, which are a series of film portraits, were displayed um, was uh, maybe a little bit confusing for visitors to understand, like, well, what, what is this thing that I'm looking at? I don't want to read a long mm -hmm. label. Um, and we ended up developing an interactive that allows you to make your own that you then have emailed to yourself digitally. Um, and it, it does this really great thing where it, it – solves a problem of like giving context to the work, but it also is a free souvenir. And it's also mm -hmm. so simple and so serial that like children use it, old people use it, everyone in between uses it. Um, mm -hmm. And we didn't necessarily set, it, set out to say, okay, well, you know, our naive, uh, you know, 13 through 18 demographic is having a hard time understanding screen tests. Like how can we make something? It was more like, it was a much higher level and then in the development, mm -hmm. and in the, especially in like the prototyping phase, when we put it in front of museum patrons, we're, we are super, super conscious about getting something early and frequently in front of patrons, naive patrons of all age ranges, of all demographics, um, mm -hmm. of all abilities. There's, there's very few things. The one thing I can think of off the top of my head that was developed for a very specific audience is a section of our site called Resources and Lessons, which are mm -hmm. something like 135-ish lessons for teachers, um, which were developed with a significant amount of research, um, you know, into what they needed, mapping it across things like state and uh, national education standards and 21st century skills mm -hmm. and all these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. A lot of work went into that. But for the most part, I think we, we try to be as broad as possible yeah. um, and look at everyone who visits the museum under kind of the same lens. That is an interesting project. I think it's really a, it seems like kind of a homer uh, to me when you manage to Come up with something that uh, you know children and adults both find entertaining. It reminds me of those old Warner Brother cartoons, you know, when you could watch. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Bugs Bunny appeals. It has such a wide appeal, you know, and that's that's kind of magical that you can do that. Plus, then it becomes something they can do together as well, so which is kind of fantastic. So. Right, right, right. Um, We've bravo. actually gone on and and made um, three, I think three um, versions of it that actually break down into like a suitcase, and we can take it with traveling expeditions and like install mm. them with traveling expeditions as well. So we've, we've localized it in different languages, and then we've now, I think the number when I left was around like 29,000 screen tests were made all over the world, which is like crazy, like totally crazy. So 
it's really cool. Amazing. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It really is. Um, I, you mentioned, uh, you touched on this briefly earlier, and I wanted to kind of circle back to it. But, um, you know, you, you said you're kind of a one-man department there at the Warhol with a, with a, a smaller staff. But uh, uh, how do you approach uh, collaboration with other departments when you're starting a project? I mean, do you, do you, do you, do you pitch projects uh, and then achieve – how do you pitch projects and then achieve buy-in from all the relevant stakeholders? Where does that originate and, and how do you get people to buy in? Yeah, I think um, – I, so I was really, really fortunate at the Warhol that our team was super small, and mm-hmm. it really felt like a family there in the sense that sort of everyone's ideas were just as valid as everyone else's. I hear these horror stories from colleagues of mine who work in other maybe more traditional museums that are just like, you know, the curator is sort of the czar of, you know, anything cool and creative that happens in the museum, and we you know, ideas only come from them and populate down. And I'm just like, gosh, that sounds terrible. Like, I wish work in a place like that. But it I was, agree. Um, yeah, so I, I realized, like, I guess I'm really lucky to work for a place that's a bit less traditional. But, um, you know, I think having a really small team and having a team that um, is super, super open to kind of cross-collaboration and pollination of ideas from one place to another are great. I ideated some stuff that got built. Um, I had... You know, one of the things, too, is the, the, the folks that work at the Warhol tend to be early adopters of technology and tend to be really interested in technology, so that was great mm-hmm. because they would actually come to me with ideas or, or say, you know, why don't we try something crazy like this? And I think that's amazing, so of course we're going to try and do that. So, um, But I think it's um, – I feel like, you know, one of the things kind of going back to, like, my original training in, in theatrical design – you know, that's an, an inherently interdisciplinary practice where you're, you know, you might be a set designer, you're working with a lighting designer, with a costume designer, with a stage manager, with actors, with a director, and it's inherently, even though you're all in the arts, you know, the, the domains from which you come are completely different. And sure. the, um, the, the graduate program that I was in was, like, founded on that idea, right? Like, you put computer scientists and artists in a room and, like, see what happens. And I think mm-hmm. that it, um, I think it really helps kind of, lay a foundation for me to be like, well, this person is like a total expert, for example, in like the archives of the museum and like Carpathian culture. They know nothing about, they can barely turn their computer on, but that doesn't mean that we like can't have a creative conversation about, you know, how to make something cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, you, you mentioned, uh, let me go back to uh, that, uh, the, uh, the pop app for a moment. Um, uh, you, I think you, that's the one you collaborated on with students at a at a local university. What what drove that decision and um, giving oh, advice yeah. for other museums that might be uh, seeking to form those kind of partnerships? Yeah. So um, not to go back and harp on my graduate program again, but one of the things that um, the way that that program was structured is such that um, student projects are brought to the table by um, sponsors, like real-world sponsors. So, for example, mm-hmm. you know, I worked on something for a science center. Colleagues of mine worked on things for Disney or Lockheed Martin or, like, people who come and say, we have a problem we want students to solve. So that was something that I, I sort of brought to the Warhol as, like, hey, this is a resource. You know, we should use it. Not necessarily my program. We actually worked – DIY Pop was developed by a software engineering program. But um, I think that it's, it's – I'm actually more surprised that I don't see other museums doing this because, you know – I think that it's a complete win-win for both sides of the equation in the sense that for uh, the museums, it's like a zero cost, basically. Like, you, you have a team of 
really smart young developers who are really stoked to get some kind of real-world experience on their resume before they graduate. Sure. And for the students, you know, you've got this amazing project to work on. The one thing that I think is being on both sides of the equation, I think it helps both parties if, like, you can plan for a worst-case scenario from the beginning. Like, when I was a student working on on the Science Center project, um, I think that they had thought that we would it would be totally turnkey, that we would develop a prototype, we'd test it out, we'd build the final install, we would turn it on and, like, walk away. But we had to graduate. And, like, your your space didn't open <laughs> until five months after we graduated and we were all gone. So it's like, as long as the museum can plan, have some kind of contingency budget, maybe you have to hire a developer to clean up the code because maybe they got a B and not an A, you know, or... Um, you know, <laughs> something like that. I think that it, it it's really a great opportunity. And I, uh, you know, it, it was also a process that I had to introduce to folks at the Warhol saying, hey, you know, we're working with a vendor, but the vendor are students. So instead of giving them feedback as though we were paying them, we have to give them feedback as though this is a learning experience, right? So, yeah, um, yeah. and that's a little bit different, but it, I think it's really great. And I, I, uh, I would encourage other museums. I kind of harp about it all the time and saying, like, if you're not doing it now, you should definitely try and do it. Like, I, I would be surprised if a, if a university would turn you away, you know. Yeah. Well, it, the end result is great. It's a, it's a terrific app. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of code, uh, we're not going to talk code, but I, I did want to <laughs> just try to ask you kind of a nuts and bolts uh, question or two here because this one has come up um, a couple of times in our discussions over the past over the past few weeks, and that is uh, you have a, a, a project on the Warhol site called TimeWeb. Oh, and, sure. Uh, uh, you know, first I, I, I'd like to have you describe that yourself a little bit, um, but, and then my question is, it looked like a project that required um, a, a fairly uh, large team. And, um, it did, yeah. And, uh, I tell you, I'm going to save the, I'm going to save the nuts and bolts question for for, for afterwards. But, uh, so, it, cause it it looks complex, both in terms of scale and and, uh, and the kind of stuff that's on it. Um, how is is there a hierarchy of responsibilities when you're working with a large team like that? And how how are you working out differences of, of opinion during the design and build phases? Yeah. So, um, I guess for people who aren't familiar with what it is, it's a it's a web app. It's it's a website that um, features specific Warhol works across its entire life, and it gives context to the artworks by, like, in this dynamic way, illustrating things that happened at that time that influenced that work. So, for example, um, you know, Warhol's Jackie Kennedy series will be featured, and then there are all these bubbles that float around it that are all connected in different ways that show, you know, not just the assassination of JFK, but also things like the rise of 24-hour news culture in the 60s, um, you know, uh, other brutal things that were happening uh, in, in war and things like that and how all of that sort of affected how Warhol created that work. Um, you are correct that it was a massive project. It was actually um, started before I got there and uh, is was in development the entire time I was there and is technically still in development. I mean, it's been like seven years now, um, which is totally crazy. And I think that this is actually as cool as the site is and like totally useful and interesting and playful as it is. I actually feel, it feels to me like it's actually kind of outdated in the sense that um, I start all sites or any, anything really as like mobile first. Like you always start knowing that your 
your audience and like the digital world in general are, are moving so rapidly to mobile. Like this thing does not look good or work on mobile. Um, but it's, it's been an interesting kind of road. Um, internally, this was, it kind of represents like the best and worst, I think of like projects pre like a digital person at the museum in the sense that it really shows you the creative um, powerhouse that is like the Warhol's education department. They're super smart. They have amazing ways of like interpreting the collection, doing really great stuff with it. But that being said, they also don't have very much technology knowledge. So they ended up letting a vendor sort of like lead the process. And it, it tended to go on forever and ever. Um, and internally, it was really difficult. I think, you know, we, they learned, this was obviously before I got there, but they learned that the, and this happens quite frequently with sort of like designer developers, is that the designer developer had as much ego as like a curator had. <laughs> so they wanted as much say in sort of like the look, feel, and design of it as you know, our education department did. And it was, it's a really interesting balancing act. It's been a great kind of lesson in-house too about like the need for a role like mine or somebody who's like a digital yeah. user advocate. Um, but that being said, it's still a really cool, amazing, interesting, playful site. Um, yeah. Internal, yeah. Internally, like the education department sort of spearheads that and, you know, adds content to it. But it was a pretty big team of developers that, you know, at an offsite company that built it. Super. Uh, great. Uh, Josh, I should let you know, I, I lost my connection for about three minutes, so I lost. Oh. <laughs> it sounds like a great, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go back and listen to that later, but uh, I'm oh, back sure. now, and uh, uh, I got the last 20 seconds of that, but um, I'm glad you carried on. I was afraid you had gotten cut off. It was just <laughs> sure. me, so I'm, sure. I'm back online here. Um, okay, now now I wanted to ask that, that kind of nuts and bolts question, because this is the one that's really kind of come up in a number of our questions, and that is, uh, there was just a little background. One of our readings uh, really encouraged designers to take advantage of the web by including references to resources beyond those directly controlled by by the home museum. And um, but then there was another one that talked about this this really great project at Tate called the Collection of Lost Art. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but uh, they they said that by design um, they were going to close it after a year. Uh, one of the reasons for that was because they said without an ongoing budget. And they wouldn't have been able to sustain the copyright fees for for many of the images they used. And I noticed that that the Timewind project we were asking about, uh, it looks like it uses all kinds of imagery like that from other sources that are yeah. controlled uh, not by the Warhol. What issues uh, does that present? And um, could you explain about how museums, you know, should manage that kind of a challenge? Yeah, yeah. I you know, I actually think that this is quite quite easily the biggest roadblock slash challenge slash like, you know, on the horizon issue that like the museum and museums in general have to deal with. Um, at the Warhol in particular, we own our entire collection, but we don't own the copyright to basically most of it. And when you think about that, that's like totally crazy, right? Like I own that painting mm -hmm. on the wall, but if I go to the store and I buy a t-shirt that has that painting on it, I don't own the copyright to that work. The museum doesn't own the copyright to that work, and that museum can't make any money off of it, which is also a huge problem when you think about like endowments and like keeping the museum going. Um, TimeWeb, you're, you're right. TimeWeb has a lot of work from around the web, and part of that seven-year process was having our rights and reproductions team. We have an entire team of people at the museum that all they do all day long, 24 hours, you know, well, 365 wow. days a year, is, is work on legal agreements and copyright 
Um, and personally, I, you know, that's, that's how we got through those things. One of the things that they are, are really brilliant about, I think, is developing long-lasting personal relationships with those copyright holders, whether they be a foundation or an individual copyright holder or an estate. You know, more and more, unfortunately, we're dealing with the estates of people that are in Warhol's work because they've passed on. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's, I think, I guess I, I always felt this way, but now that I work at Google especially, where we're, you know, they're sort of like crawling and indexing the web and everything, it just becomes such a strange, like, asinine problem that, like, the museum, the Warhol, for example, is still operating on, and, and by no, no decision of their own, just legally, they have to operate on uh, a digital agreement that was crafted in 1994 about image resolution, right? Yeah. So, like, they aren't allowed to use, technically, they're not allowed to use images over, like, I think it's, like, 90 pixels square, which when you think about that now, it's, like, ridiculous, <laughs> right? Like, Lovely. Beautiful. It is, you know, it's just, it's crazy. And the, the interesting thing is that there are people like Google Art Project, for example, that are just completely, like, shattering those boundaries. And it's mm-hmm. more and more we found that um, colleagues in the museum industry, uh, some really big names who I think are able to go and take that risk, are just going out and doing it, and they're going to see what happens. And it's more about can we push the boundaries by sort of like breaking the rules a little bit, and then can we rewrite mm-hmm. the rules around what's happening now? But I, I really do think that it's easily the biggest, you know, that and money are like, but they're so intertwined, are like the two biggest challenges yeah. that the museums face. Yeah, it's interesting. You might have mentioned this while I while I got cut off there a little bit, but uh, you talk about having uh, those people working so hard on the on the copyright issues and such. That again, given the complexity of that side, did you work with uh, outside vendors on that? Was that something developed? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. House? I mentioned I, I mentioned that um, it was built by outside vendors. One of the things I mentioned um, as well is like this idea of like design ego and how hard it is to like when you work with a vendor who really has a vision for what this thing should be, but you're the one who holds the artwork and you have a vision for Mm -hmm. what it should be. And I, I talked a little bit about that too. Um, but yeah, it was, it was built by outside developers. Okay, great. I'm going to don't, uh, uh, don't repeat yourself. Uh, I'll get that later. Um, uh, one of, uh, I think one of uh, the biggest worries we've had when, you know, uh, planning these projects in a, in a theoretical sense is, um, you know, what about the ongoing maintenance needed for projects, yeah. Um, in terms of technical maintenance, staff, funding, I mean, how, how did you account for that during the uh, project development? Yeah, I, it was, I mean, at the Warhol, I think it was definitely a lot of trial and error and sort of figuring out what the museum was willing to fund for maintenance. Because at the end of the day, it all comes down to dollars, like the museum something. Mm-hmm. But I, I realized maybe after a couple of years that it was really important in, like, the ideation phase to design, to um, to pinpoint very early on what the life cycle of this particular project is. When is this designed to die? Right? Like we're making, mm-hmm. and, and this is really hard, I think, for people to swallow, especially if you're spending lots, lots of money on like an app, for example, maybe over 100K on an app. You only predict this app will be an app for four years. So you need to, you need to be very you know, frank up front in saying in four years, this is going to be either so unmanageable because screen sizes will have gotten so much larger or mm-hmm. there will be so many other social networks to tie into. It's just not going to work because we don't have a development team at the Warhol. It's just one person managing vendors, um, mm-hmm. you know, to define the end point of that life cycle and then to say, okay, 
it, it becomes a lot easier, I think, to build in like a maintenance schedule if you know that you're only going to be throwing money at it for four years. Right, right. So, and right. that's actually something with, with DIY Pop that I, I'm actually, as much as I love DIY Pop, I'm very aware that it looks super long in the tooth because we launched it in <laughs> 20, and we launched it in 2011 when things were much smaller and things were more bitmappy and like not as crazy. And we have a design coming down the pike that's so much cleaner and more modern and, you know, makes mm. use of multi-touch gestures and things. But we didn't plan for that maintenance early on. So yeah. that was that's definitely a very valid question, I think, to ask. Well, this con- conceptually, I think it still holds up pretty well. You know, it's always, you know, things always get sure, yeah, yeah, forward, yeah. but uh, it's, it's still fun. Um, yeah. I just, uh, I want to move it along a little bit here because we're kind of nearing uh, sort of the last half of this, about the last, uh, you know, 10% here. But, um just shifting to a kind of promoting these things. Is, uh, one of Warhol's quotes is that in the future, everybody will be famous for 15 minutes, of course. And and you pointed out somewhere that that kind of accurately predicted things like viral video and, and social media. Uh, what are your thoughts about uh, museums making use of social media and and, and how it relates to uh, museum projects and promoting? Oh sure. Um, I mean, I think for the most part, like museums just haven't figured out how to use social media like at all. I think, mm-hmm. you know, we, we did a, a huge amount of social media at the Warhol and found that the, the least um, engaging content was the content that everyone was spewing out, which are things like, hey, we have an exhibition that's opening on this day, or hey, we have a mm-hmm. program on this day. Like, right. nobody cares, right? Like, what they want is they want to see cool, um, cool images. They want to hear bits of content they never heard before. Like, that's what people want. Um, I also think that there there are some museums though that are doing really cool stuff. I think LACMA in particular um, had started a Snapchat. Um, I don't know. You guys may have reviewed this or like learned about it, but they started a Snapchat a while ago, and they're like leveraging the tools in the way that the tools were designed to be used, which is mm-hmm. they're doing fun. You know, they're they're willing to take a risk and like not be so serious with specific works of art. Um, there's like a I think it's a Rodin sculpture. Um, that looks kind of like, you know, Beyonce doing single ladies and they, they you know, they Snapchatted <laughs> it out and said all the single ladies, you know, they're like, that's it. And it's yeah. like, that's cool. You're, you're identified within your brand, which is a cool, interesting museum. You're leveraging the collection and you're using the social media channel the way you should, like, bravo, you know. But um, I think the other thing um, in terms of promotion is to not forget that, like, there is a real world and, and that you can reach out to people in the real world to, to promote your digital things. So, for example, the Warhol has... Um, an annual, or it might be semi-annual actually, um, teachers open house where they invite teachers from all over the region to come. They have cocktails. They talk about new education initiatives at the museum. And then they walk them through the new education resources and lesson section of the site. You know, like that's the way that you get them to use it. Um, they might not open your e-blast because they might be too busy. So like bribe them with some alcohol, get them over here and like, you know, <laughs> show them about your project. Yeah, that's the draw. So, <laughs> it helps. And then, and then I think another one other example, if I could, is um, the the Walters um, is doing some amazing stuff mm-hmm. um, in opening the, the API to their collection. Um, so what that means is they they've allowed the data structures of that run their collections management database to just be used open source by anybody. And they, mm-hmm. they hosted um, the equivalent of like a game jam, where they basically bought a ton of pizza. And like Mountain Dew, and they invited a bunch of people over, and they had a con- they had a contest, and they were like, in 24 hours, whoever can make the coolest thing using our data, like it can be a game, it can be a web app, it can be anything, like we will produce it for real, and like we'll make a thing out of it. Wow. And it's like that's, that's the co- like that's a cool, exciting way to you know to do something. So. Hmm. Interesting. Um, yeah. 
Uh, we'll switch to a few uh, big picture questions here, and then uh, then I'm going to throw it open to uh, some questions from uh, some of my colleagues. Sure. And um, so you guys listening in, you might start thinking about that um, here in about five minutes. Uh, but um, you know, I, the students are always uh, kind of alert to new strategies and technologies and, and platforms, and it's, it can be uh, overwhelming uh, how fast things change. Of course, do you have any advice for? Um, Along those lines, for aspiring uh, professionals preparing to enter the job market, or, or those of us currently navigating the, the profession, or anything we could, anything we should, yeah, general. I mean, I, keep in mind. I think it's so. I think it's really important to think, to to, to demonstrate in a way that you can think creatively. And I say mm -hmm. this because I, when, when I left the museum, I was able to kind of be involved in some interviews to fill my role. And one of the things that was most depressing to me is people who know a lot about technology but can't think of cool, exciting ways to use it. And mm -hmm. I, think the, I think the key to that is, A, like know your domain. So like, you know, research the collection or something before you talk with people, you know, if you're mm -hmm. going to go interview somewhere. But also don't – I think not, not just in interviews but also like in the day-to-day -day work, like don't um, – don't approach a problem with how can I figure out a cool way to use this technology, but instead approach a problem by saying like what is what is a bigger picture issue here and how can technology solve it, right? Mm -hmm. Like like think about it in a completely different way. Um, and then the other thing is I've I found more and more in my time being there is um, I love to just sort of I, I, I'm not a media artist by any stretch of the imagination, but I love to keep up with Ars Technica or some of the sort of leading. Uh, you know, media art programs in the country because I feel like I've discovered recently that like media artists are the ones who are hacking together the newest technologies in like the crazy coolest ways. Um, so I always like, I just like try, try and keep a finger on the pulse of like what the media art community is doing because mm -hmm. A, you might learn about a cool new technology that you never knew about, but you also might say, oh my gosh, they're using it in this really interesting, cool way. So you know, and then you can reference that and sound really cool in an interview. So. <laughs> <laughs> it always helps. Um, yeah. I, um, uh, you, you mentioned this a little bit at the top, but maybe we can, if you can, go into any more detail. Uh, can you tell us about uh, what you're working on now or what you're looking forward to working on in the near future? And if you have any, any dream projects that you would like to do someday, what are those like? Sure. Um, so right now I'm actually in New York um, for a somewhat extended period to open a, a physical space here um, that has a lot of interactive stuff in it. It has a massive like 20-foot LED television interactive screen thing. It has an LED curtains. It has um, you know multi-touch screens and everything. Um, but basically what I do is I work on a team that supports right now just sort of like internal initiatives where they want to really impress people that come in that do business with Google. So mm -hmm. that's what I'm working on now. Um, and they tend to be global, which is great because I get to do a lot of travel, which is like a great perk. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but, you know, in terms of like dream projects, I, uh, I'm really fortunate that Google has a thing called a 20% project where when you work here, you're able to devote 20% of your time to like a self-started project of anything you want to do. Um, I just started here like five weeks ago, so I haven't had a chance to even think about that yet. But um, I, I definitely want to like leverage that time and maybe go back to to theater or dance in some way and just you know think if there's I don't know is there something cool or interesting you know that I could use that time for um, mm -hmm. in that vein. I have no idea, but maybe I'll I'll figure something out. <laughs> I, I have a feeling you will. Call it a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
Um, just one last question, then I'm going to uh, throw it open uh, to sure. uh, my, my friends here for, for some questions. Um, but in a blog post about the Warhol Museum, uh, I think it was about Figment, you describe yourself as an optimistic technologist. Can you elaborate on what that means to you? Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah. So I think like when, when the Figment project launched, I was really – the thing that really excited about excited me about it wasn't necessarily that it had a lot of views. It was more that cool things were happening. People were making art at the at the site mm -hmm. and doing really cool stuff. And I think that I like to think optimistically that we're sort of, you know, we're at a point kind of in like our evolution that, you know, we now have people that, you know, they're called digital natives, these people who were born mm -hmm. with iPads and iPhones and all this technology kind of from day one. And I feel like I'm starting to recognize um, trends that are happening that are sort of pushing us back to the real world or maybe where technology is sort of disappearing. I think mm -hmm. some really good examples of that, when I, when I left the museum, we were working pretty intensely on uh, iBeacons, which are they're ultra-low energy Bluetooth transponders that sort of you can, you know, they're super small, you can hide them, we, we hid them behind paintings, and as you walked around a space, your phone would buzz and give you a little factoid about that work or would give you a little mm -hmm. audio snippet about that work. It's totally invisible, right? Like we've moved away from, or I hope that we're moving away from um, kind of spectacle-based technology stuff. You know, screens can only get so yeah. big. Pixels can only get so dense. It's now about how can technology support more creative, interesting ways to, like, make our lives better. Um, mm -hmm. All over Google, they have um, – these things called GVCs, Google Video Conferencing Sessions, um, that because this company is so global and it's kind of always on the move, um, they have created an incredibly dense, complicated technology system to connect us wherever we are. And it's so seamless and it's just completely out of the way. So I'd like to, I, don't, I think optimistically, I'm hoping that like this next sort of like digital native generation doesn't care as much about you know, how many pixels they can cram into an iPhone. It's mm -hmm. more about that killer app that connects me to the person I love on the other side of the world mm -hmm. or, you know, these sorts of things that, that can be um, kind of only uh, – can only happen with that, I guess. Terrific. Well, that's a wonderfully optimistic note to uh, uh, wrap it <laughs> I'm up a glass, on. I'm uh, a glass half full guy, so that's, that's how it is. <laughs> well, bravo, bravo. Uh, well, listen, we're not going to write up against uh, the hour-long cutoff that I promised you. Can you give us about five or ten more minutes so we can uh, yeah, have no, a few I'm, more questions? I'm, I'm actually wanna... – yeah, I'm clear the rest of the day, so I'm, I'm good. Oh, now, now you've done it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, we'll, we'll keep it to like five or ten minutes here, and I'll, I'll throw it open sure. to uh, questions uh, from any of my uh, colleagues. So. I'm going to let you guys, um, those of you who are listening in, you're probably going to have to unmute. And then I think you can chime right in. Dana, maybe you can help us out with this if I'm doing this incorrectly. But um, does anyone have any questions for Joshua? Hi, Joshua. This is Dana. Um, I'm Hello. here with, with my daughter, Eleanor, so you may hear some little peeps. She's three months old. Sure. Keep <laughs> her quiet, but we'll see. Um, cool. Thank you so much for talking with us. I've been finding this interview fabulous, so thank you. Cool. And I Great. know you, you've had a lot of transition lately, so I appreciate you fitting us in. I sure. I feel like it, it's funny because you ended us on an optimistic note, but I actually find that I've learned kind of the most in my career when things fail. And sure. so 
curious if you can share with us um, maybe a project that didn't go as as you thought it would, or or maybe falls under your definition of failed, and what you learned from that. Oh sure. And I'm um, mute <laughs> sure, sure. No worries. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, we only talk about like the things that work, right? Like we only talk about the projects that are successful. But for for each one of those, there's at least one, if not two, things that have just like failed spectacularly. Um, I'm trying to think of one off the top of my head from the Warhol because there are so many. Like the most relevant. Um, I gotta think. I gotta think here for a second. Oh, I know of one. Okay, so um, we were working for um, quite a long time on developing like a prototype Silver Clouds app, like some kind of app that would be super cool that you could load. Um, if you're not familiar with Warhol Silver Clouds, they're uh, kind of a, a neutrally buoyant balloon, silver balloon, um, that you know blows around really easily in the wind, and and usually they're installed in such a way where like it's an entire room full of these things, and you can walk through them, and it's really it's really beautiful and really exciting to kind of walk around them. And um, we had this really great idea for a Silver Clouds app where, you know, we could use all this crazy technology that the phone had, like gyroscopes and blowing into the speaker to make the clouds move and use the camera to, like, put Silver Clouds in any room you wanted and all of this stuff. And this thing, this, this idea ballooned into such a gargantuan, like, crazy project that it sort of, like, collapsed under its own weight. And we really from the beginning realized that we just completely lost sight of the fact that at the end of the day, as cool as all of this stuff was, like there was no way that this would ever make the experience of the art any better. Um, and there, it didn't really serve a purpose. Like it didn't, you know, with DIY pop, the purpose was people who come to the studio at the museum, we discovered, and a lot of people who, who look at the artwork don't understand how silkscreen printing works, especially like nowadays when we have Instagram or, you know, any filter-based pop art, anything. Um, mm -hmm. So the app, so the point of that app was to sort of like teach people and let them make their own, and, and maybe you'll look at Warhol's art in a different way. The Silver Clouds app had absolutely no purpose. Like it was just complete spectacle. Like it was, you know, and we sort of, had this like moment where we're like, we need to kill this project because it's completely, you know, as cool, as cool as the sound, as fun as it would be to like shake your phone and watch them move around or like blow into your phone or like, you know, make a really cool shader to make them look reflective. Like it's dumb, yeah. like it's pointless. It's not going to serve any purpose. Um, there have been a couple tech projects that have, like we just couldn't make work. That's also a thing that happens. Um, but more often than not, it's a lot of projects where we have a great idea for something and we run away with it and then we realize, oh, wait a minute, like, you know, we got to do a check here. Like, let's check in and, and doesn't yeah. fulfill our mission. So, it's always for the amount always, of resources that we've taken. Yeah, it's always interesting to, you know, it's not always easy to be the brave soul that finally says, we've got to kill this project. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. exactly. After, after that much is invested in it. Um, okay, uh, anybody else uh, wants to unmute and uh, ask Josh a question? I know we had a few here. I'll hold for a second. Okay. Well, sounds like somebody might be trying to get in. Oh, okay. This is a this is a new interface for all of us, so I just want to give people a few seconds to uh, figure it out if they have any problems. Sure. 
Okay, well, maybe not. Uh, I've got a uh, maybe not. Well, um, with that, uh, unless anybody interrupts me here at the last moment, um, somebody Clay? there? Yes. Hi, 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 Clay and Josh. This is Allison. Oh, I'm hi. having trouble with the mute button. Yeah, <laughs> I just have a really quick awesome. question. <laughs> yeah, and I also hear lawnmowers in the background. Um, I have a really <laughs> quick question just about um, the. I, I really liked your – I was thinking about this question as you were going through the interview, and then the way you ended the interview with um, this movement away from technology just to develop spectacle, you know, how many pixels can we cram into a screen. Um, and I wondered how these things would fit together, but I'm not quite sure. Um, my question was, is is there a place um, today in, you know, the 21st century for some of the traditional things or the things that we would think of as a traditional museum for – a curator for uh, an authority or an expert on a on a certain subject. Um, is there still a place for for that kind of voice uh, in this in this kind of evolving community? And could that voice be something that could be integrated into this thing that you're talking about about developing a, a project that goes beyond uh, just spectacle or visual? Yeah, I, it's a really 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 good question and like something that we talked about a lot at the Warhol actually. Um, so it's really, like, I, I kind of, in my own head, I don't know if people agree with me on this, but I feel like museums tend to have three things. Like, all museums have three things. They have a space, some kind of physical space, most of them. There's a couple, like, online-only museums. They have cool objects or, like, important objects, and then they have this other thing, which are experts, right? Like, they have people who are experts about that object or about how to interpret it or about, you know, its importance in history or culture or all these sorts of things. So I feel like you know, uh, given the fact that these things are, you know, like, quote, important for, you know, they're important for a reason, you know, and, and there needs to be context given to that. So I don't think, like, the role of a curator will ever go away. But I think, um, I think more and more in, like, the cacophony of, like, this democratized web and, like, democratized social media and everything, it's almost like that voice becomes more important in a way. Like, there sort of needs to be, like, an authority or somebody who at least is the storehouse of like official information about what this thing is. So like, you know, Google trolls the web and, and you can find, you know, despite our biggest efforts, you can find most of the things in the museum's collection online in some way, shape or form, but like the original piece we still have and the original information about that work we still have because our curators made it. So, like, you know, we've, I can't tell you how many times we've found, like, incorrect information about a, a specific work online. So I think that there's definitely still a need for that role. But I think, I think it's sort of like the role of a curator as somebody where you go into a museum and they tell you what you're supposed to see, how you're supposed to see it, and why might, might change. I would hope that it would change. Um, there's some museums that are, like, trying to crack that. You know, there's... Um, it was years and years ago by this point, but the Walker had like a, a gallery space where half of it was curated by curators and half was curated by the public mm -hmm. at large. Um, mm -hmm. There have been, you know, a lot of people trying to crack that nut. I don't know if it'll ever be cracked. I think it's a thing that evolves. Um, but I, I, it's an, it's an interesting, like it's an interesting problem. And I think because the goalposts are shifting all the time, and like new technologies are being made, and um, you know, I think there's opportunity for it. I'll give you a really great example, actually. Um, I'm actually making a call from a building in New York that is one of the kind of headquarters for YouTube. And 
they're opening a space here for creators to sort of come in and, and make great YouTube videos. And in that space, we are permanently installing a, a screen test machine, one of the screen test machines that I worked on at the Warhol. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's one of those scenarios where it's outside of the museum. It's in, an, it's in another type of space where people are making, making their own art. You know, some of it might just be makeup tutorials, sure. But, like, you know, some people are making, making their own media. And for us, it's a really great opportunity for people to learn about, you know, themes that made YouTube possible. You know, these, this idea of, like, everybody has a camera. You know, any content is, is good content. Everyone has their 15 minutes of fame. Um, you know, all of these things that sort of Warhol founded, like what better place for a screen test machine, which is like not super serious. It's not an original artwork. Like, and, and the curator had a really important role in that. And I think that, you know, that's just one example of like how I don't think that that role will ever go away. Mm-hmm. Maybe it just might adapt or change. Right, right. Okay, I think maybe um, maybe one more question if anybody has one, and then uh, and then we're going to let uh, Joshua get on with his day. Uh, anybody else? Also, just so you know, I, I mean, feel free to um, send out my contact information if anyone has questions afterward or like just wants to connect or chat or anything. Okay, terrific. Well, uh, with that then, I think we'll, we'll wrap it up and. Um, uh, it's been really great talking with you and um, yeah. I'm becoming more familiar with your work and I know I speak for the entire class uh, and Dana and thank you for being so generous with your, your time and um, judging from your resume you're a very busy guy <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that it just maybe a crazy person but yeah. <laughs> well I, I live in San Francisco I live and work in San Francisco so we're, we're, we're new neighbors so welcome to the left coast and uh, I think you're great. Gonna, I think you're gonna like it out there and congratulations to the new um, the new gig at Google it sounds like it's gonna be thank you really fantastic you guys are gonna be doing some Thanks. fantastic stuff well, and, and thank you for the uh, the challenging questions because it sort of like made me step back and like Evaluate, you know, which is like always really good. <laughs> great, great. Okay, Joshua, we'll let you let you uh, get on with it. Have a fantastic day, and um, I look forward to seeing what you do in the future. Great, thanks so much. Adios. Bye. Thank you. Bye.